Um, in the final weeks of Jesus's life, the tension between Jesus and the religious establishment, uh, really, it reached the point of no return. Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and once Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, the religious leadership began to plot the death of Jesus. And then when Judas decided to break ranks and betray Jesus, it was really only a matter of time before the religious leaders would have Jesus the way that they wanted him, dead. And so in the weeks leading up to the death of Jesus and in the days leading up to the final week of Jesus' life, what we call the Passion Week, the tension was palpable. Treachery was in the air. Jesus had come into Jerusalem, perhaps on Sunday, and when Jesus came in, he came in to the celebration of the people, but the tide of public opinion will soon turn. And so Jesus is in the middle of his last week on earth, and the plan of the religious leadership to kill Jesus was in full effect. On Thursday, Jesus knew that everything was coming to a head. Jesus knew that everything was coming to an unavoidable, inescapable head. Jesus knew what was around the corner. And Jesus knew that there was something that he wanted to do before all of that would happen. Jesus, there was something that he thought should be done, had to be done, needed to be done before the religious leadership would fully enact their plan. So Jesus decided that he needed to have one last dinner with his disciples, one last supper with his friends. So Jesus arranged a clandestine meeting inside the city. It seems to be that Jesus had prearranged with a gentleman who was to be on a certain street carrying a water pitcher. And so Jesus sent his disciples into the city of Jerusalem and said, I want you to look for the man with the water pitcher. Follow him to an undisclosed location. They followed the man with the water pitcher to a particular place. And then once they were inside, they told the man what Jesus had told them to tell him. The teacher needs a place to have dinner. The teacher needs a place for this evening. And so the man said, there's a room in the upper part of the house, the upper room. And so you can have that room to have your last dinner, to have your last supper with Jesus. So they told Jesus the plan. And so Jesus met them later that evening in a pre-arranged location. And it says that once all of them had gotten there in that upper room, the Gospel of Luke says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And it was a striking event. It was a surprising event because Jesus is talking about his suffering and Jesus is going to talk about his death. And nobody in that room expected Jesus to come to Jerusalem and suffer and die. They thought that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to take the throne of David. They thought that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to kickstart his kingdom. And they were going to sit on his right and they were going to sit on his left. And when Jesus started talking about suffering and dying, everybody was kind of taken aback. But beyond that, the whole moment is striking because Jesus knows what's about to happen. Jesus knows the suffering that's just around the corner. Jesus knows the type of death that he is about to die, yet he does not run away. He is not trying to cut a last minute deal to escape what the religious leadership is trying to do to him. But matter of fact, as a man's type of man, he's gonna face it head on. But before he faces what he ultimately knows he has to face, he wanted to have one last dinner, one last supper with friends. He wanted an opportunity to celebrate 
and observe what the Jewish people called the supper of the Passover, the dinner of the Passover, the feast of the Passover. He wanted to celebrate Passover with friends. Now, when it comes to Passover, the Jewish people had celebrated this thing called Passover for over 1,400 years before Jesus ever showed up on the pages of history. Matter of fact, dating back to 1446 BC when Israel celebrated their first Passover. And this is where we are going to pick up the story today. Now, if you're a guest of ours, for the past few weeks, we have been in a series where we're talking about the story of the Bible and how the story of the Bible helps us to understand all the other stories in the Bible. And for the past few weeks, we've been camped out at the beginning of the story, the first book of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. And matter of fact, we've been looking at the beginning of the beginning of the story because the beginning of the story serves as the foundation for the rest of the story. It gives us the frame of reference from which we will understand what comes next. And so if you haven't been here, just let me give you the storyline as we've discovered so far. Here it is. God created, we rebelled, we ran away, God's coming after us. So at all of our churches, let's just say this out loud. God created, we rebelled, we ran away, God's coming after us. Not to pay us back, but he's coming after us to win us back. He's not coming after us because he's angry with us, but he's coming after us because he loves us. And in the beginning of the story of Genesis, we are introduced to a God who never gives up on us. We are introduced to the idea of a God who never gives up on you, who never gives up on me, no matter what you do, no matter what I do. And we find the storyline developing that God will stop at nothing to win his family back. The first 11 chapters of Genesis is the introduction to the remainder of the book of Genesis. And there we find a God who's going to stop at nothing. He will go to any length to win back his family. That's what we see in the rest of the Old Testament. And so this is where we left off last week in the year 2091 B.C. And in 2091 B.C., God sent his plan to win his family back into motion. God set his plan to win back the nations of the world into motion when he made a promise to a particular man that we talked about last week by the name of Abraham. God promised Abraham that one day he would be the father of a great nation. Even though at 75 and his wife, Sarah, well into her 70s, they had no children whatsoever. They were considered barren. They, they considered themselves unable to have children. But yet God says, you're going to have children. And not, not just that, but one day you're going to be the father of a great nation. And one day, Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. And one day, one of your descendants out of your nation, I'm going to bless the entire world through you, Abraham. And it was all seemed so impossible, so unlikely. But this was an unconditional promise that God made Abraham. An unconditional promise. And this unconditional promise that God gives to Abraham now becomes the focus and the lens through which we read the rest of the Old Testament. If you want to know what Genesis 11 afterward is all about, it is about God doing what he has to do in order to fulfill this unconditional promise to Abraham. So, Abraham... He thought, you know, this sounds great, but seems so unlikely. And about 10 years after, you know, God made him the promise, you know, Sarah, his wife, she was looking at Abraham. She hadn't gotten pregnant yet. And it just seemed like, you know, they needed to do something. It had been 10 years since God promised that they were going to have a child, but they had no children yet. And so Sarah decided to do what some of us have decided to do at different times uh, to help God out. Uh, when God seems to be slow and God doesn't seem to be doing his part. So, you know, we go to the drawing board and we decide 
decide, this is how I need to help God out since God obviously is not doing anything and he's not doing anything because obviously he must want me to do something. And even though God said he would do it, he's not done it. So I think I should do it. And so one day Sarah's thinking and she looked at one of their young servants by the name of Hagar and she was younger and fitter and and she looked at Hagar and said, hmm. And she devised a plan and she went to her husband Abraham and she said, honey, you know, you're in your 70s and so am I, but you seem to have a little bit of your mojo still left and and I'm wondering maybe the problem's with me and so I've been thinking maybe it's God's will for you to have sex with this younger fitter girl that's serving us in our house and and get her pregnant and and, kind of help God out and so you know Abraham looked at his wife Sarah and said well let me pray about it yes I think God's will is probably for me to do that And, and so that's kind of what he did because Abraham's no different than you and no different than me and he was just as human as any of us and so He decides he's going to sleep with Hagar, and as a result of that was born Ishmael. And Ishmael was getting ahead of God. Ishmael was not the son of promise that God intended. But out of Ishmael, it's a fascinating story, out of Ishmael would come the Arab nations. And again, it's a great story, but it's not the story. Eventually, Abraham and Sarah get on the same page as God, and they wait on God to do what God promised to do. And so when God did what he promised he would do, Abraham and Sarah had a son by the name of Isaac. And Isaac was the son of promise. And so the promise that God gave to Abraham was now passed on to be the promise of Isaac. And then after Isaac, Isaac had a son by the name of Jacob. And Jacob was the son of promise. So the promise that began with Abraham and was passed on to Isaac is now passed on to Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. These 12 sons will become the namesake. They will become the patriarchs of what we call the 12 tribes of Israel. And from the 12 tribes of Israel is the nation of Israel, the chosen people of God, the chosen nation that God will use through whom he will save the world. And this is the story that we find in the book of Genesis. But today's story begins with one of those 12 sons, a son by the name of Joseph. When we're introduced to Joseph for the very first time, he's 17 years old. He's an idealist. He's an optimist. Uh, He's a dreamer. He's a bit of a punk. He's got a streak of arrogance in him, uh, partially because he's the favorite son of his father, Jacob. He's the favorite son of his father, Jacob. He is the favorite. He is the pick of the litter. Now, whenever there is a pick of the litter, whenever there is a favorite son or a favorite daughter, it is always causes drama in a family. And matter of fact, this is free. This is not the point of the, the sermon, but parental favoritism creates psychological wounds for those who are not the favorite. Amen. Now, some of you are here and you are the favorite. <laughs> you can never do anything wrong. It was all, you know, just, just shut up and sit, sit down. You know, it's just, some of you are that. But for some of us, <laughs> we're not the favorite. It's like we, we knew we were not the favorite and, you know, there's psychological wounds with that. And then, you know, the less favored ends up getting resentful of the more favored and gets resentful of mom and dad who favored one over the other. And that's what happened in this family. Uh, the other sons hated Joseph because he was the favorite son of Jacob. And so here, here's, this is just for free. Again, this is not the point of the sermon, but, but here you go. When a parent has a favorite kid, it tends to screw up the other kids. That's it. That's it right there. So, parents, free, free parenting advice. Thou shalt not screw up your children. <laughs> and if you have a favorite kid, 
don't have a favorite kid anymore. And if you can't help but have a favorite kid, just keep lying to the other kid like you have been all these other years. I don't have a favorite, but I just want you to know, we know. We know. Okay, now back to the story. These brothers so hated Joseph because Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob, his father, that they faked his death and sold him into slavery. Parents, that's how bad it can go. They faked their brother's death and sold him into slavery. And it's a fascinating story, but again, it's not the point of the story. But he goes to Egypt, he becomes a slave, and it's the story of how he went from being a slave to the prime minister of Egypt, second in command under Pharaoh himself because he developed a plan to save the nation from famine. And again, like I said, you can go home and you can read that all on your own. But it was, you know, one of those type of stories that we love. It was the great kind of story of rags to riches, a success story. But in the midst of Joseph's success, he's gone from being a slave, now he's the prime minister. There was something missing in all of his success. And the thing that was missing in all of his success was the fact that he was still holding on to unforgiveness towards his brothers. There, there, there were things that were just not right with all of his brothers, and, and rightfully so. The brothers had faked his death, sold him into slavery, and all kinds of bad things and horrible things had happened as a result of that. But Joseph, he did not want to deal with the unforgiveness anymore because even in success, and some of you know this, no matter how successful you are, no matter how favored sometimes it seems like you may be or how blessed sometimes it seems like you may be, if there is unforgiveness, if there is a relationship that's been fractured somewhere along the way, there will be an emptiness to all of that success. There will be an emptiness to all of that blessing and all of that favor. And no matter how good things seem to be, if there's unforgiveness and if there's fractured relationships, then it's going to be somewhat empty. And so Joseph had to wrestle with a question that we all have to wrestle with somewhere along the way. And it's the question of, what will I do with those who have wronged me? What will I do with those who have wronged me? Am I going to hold on to bitterness? Am I going to hold on to resentment? Am I, am I just going to be angry with them for the rest of my life? Am I going to be passive aggressive towards them? Am I going to ignore them? Am I going to give them the cold shoulder? Or am I going to let go so I can move on? Because I can't move on until I let go. Will I take steps to reconcile? Will I choose forgiveness rather than unforgiveness? What will I do concerning those who have hurt me? And Joseph chose what we should all choose. He chose forgiveness. He chose reconciliation. And when he chose to forgive his brothers, what his brothers had done to him once upon a time could no longer hurt him. Because when you forgive those who have wronged you at some point in your past, you take away the power of what they did to hurt you any longer. You don't forget it, but you forgive it. You let it go so you can move on. And so Joseph, his story shows us how to move past the past. And it also reminds us that forgiveness doesn't correct the past, but it can better the future. It doesn't correct your past, but it can better your future. And that's what it did for Jacob. And this is all part of the story that we're trying to talk about today. Because Joseph chose forgiveness and because he chose reconciliation, Jacob and all of his other brothers ended up moving down to Egypt to be with Joseph. And they became a family again. And then eventually Jacob, you know, Joseph's father died and the brothers went and buried their father and came back and they were afraid that Joseph was going to turn on them and drop the hammer on them. But Joseph assured them, no, I've forgiven you. I love you. And what you meant for evil, God used it for good in my life. And so they really all became a family again. 
And so in time, Joseph died. And this is how the book of Genesis ends. This is the last verse in Genesis. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. The first 11 chapters of Genesis is the beginning of the beginning of the story. Genesis 12 through 50 really serves as the chronicles of the patriarchs. The stories about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're great stories, but they're not the story. It's an interesting part of the Bible, but it is not the point of the Bible. So if you're here and some of those stories in Genesis 12 through 50 really cause you some, you know, internal angst and, and you wonder, you know, why could somebody like Abraham or Isaac or Jacob do that? And who would let their sons do that to that person? And, and some of those things bother you. Well, you're not alone. But don't allow the parts of the story to keep you from understanding the point of the story. And don't let the stories cause you to ignore the story of the Bible because the story from here on out is how God will fulfill his promise to Abraham, how he will choose a nation to bless all the nations in the world. So in Egypt, Jacob is dead, Joseph is dead. And now all of the family of Jacob and Joseph, they just keep on growing. They keep on increasing in number. I mean, they were, they were growing like rabbits. I mean, they had a lot of time on their hand and they just reproduced. They were some of the most fertile people you've ever met in your entire life. And they just kept growing, kept growing, kept growing in numbers and numbers and numbers. And they went from being a family of 70 to being tribes of people. And then when the book of Exodus begins, this is how the book of Exodus begins. Then a new king, a new Pharaoh, to whom Joseph meant nothing, he came to power in Egypt. In other words, the memory of Joseph no longer carried any weight. It was no longer a benefit to be connected to that part of the family. Matter of fact, it no longer paid to be a relative of Joseph. It's going to start costing to be a relative of Joseph. Uh, the new Pharaoh does what all good leaders do. They evaluated the situation. They seemed to examine the facts and to try to interpret what the facts were suggesting. And so Pharaoh looked out and he saw these Hebrew people, these descendants of Joseph, and Joseph who was descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he saw how numerous they were and how many of them there were. And he considered them a threat. He, he began to see them as the potential for revolution. And he began to think about if an army invaded Egypt, then they could be the deciding factor. If they sided with an invading army, they could tip the scales against Egypt in the time of war. And Pharaoh could not let that happen. So it says, they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor. Now, we hear these words, but I, I want you to try to emotionally connect with it for just a moment. Think about the most grotesque story you've heard in recent days. Something you saw on social media, something you read in a newspaper, you heard, you know, through a news report about someone who carried out some act of injustice against another person or group of people. What a father did to a son or daughter, what a mother did to a son or daughter, what someone did to a stranger, what a man did to a woman. What? Think about something and, and you read it, you heard about it, and it turned your stomach and it made you angry because of how heinous it was. This is that on a macro level. This is forced slavery. This is oppression. This is injustice. This is an entire people group being treated like animals because they were a particular people group. And so it says, we're going to make their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all of their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. 
These are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now they have lost all freedom. And these are the heirs of promise who have become slaves. And the promise that was made to Abraham, passed on to Isaac, and passed on to Jacob, seems now almost like a fairy tale rather than something to actually believe in. I, I can picture in Egypt, they would go and they would do their forced labor and they would come in at the end of the evening and they would be bone tired. And, and fathers and grandfathers, they, they would gather up the family in living quarters and they would tell the stories of how God talked to Abraham and how God promised Abraham and kids would sit there and they would listen to these stories and teenage son and teenage daughters would listen to these stories and wives and grandmothers would listen to these stories and fathers and grandfathers would say, once upon a time, our forefather Abraham was made a promise by God. God promised him that one day he would father a great nation and one day this nation that we are gonna be a part of, it's gonna bless the entire world. And they were listening to these stories as slaves. And I can only imagine that some of them thought, well, that seems awfully like convenient and fairy tale like This just seems like, you know, kind of religion, a crutch to kind of get through the difficult times, to try to hold on to hope when there's really no hope. But there were some who heard that story who believed, that believed that God had a plan in the midst of all of the pain. And so the remnant, those who believed that God would keep his promise, they prayed. And decade after decade and decade after decade, they would pray for God to rescue them, to rescue them from the heavy, ruthless hands of Egypt. But no answer came. And from their perspective, it must have seemed like God didn't care. Or to some of them, even worse, that God wasn't there. Have you ever been there? Have you ever prayed and no answer came? Have you ever asked God to rescue, to take something away, to bring something back, to undo something? And it seemed as though there was no answer. It seemed as though heaven went silent. And in that moment, you had to wrestle with the thought, God doesn't seem to care about whatever it is that I'm going through. Or worse than that, maybe, just maybe, it's all not true and God's not even there to begin with. And that's where they were. They were in a crisis of faith and they had to make the decision to hope against hope. They had to make the decision to have confidence when there seemed to be no reason to have confidence that God cared or that God was there. And worse than that, they were praying for things to get better and you know what happened? Things got worse. And that's when the crisis of faith really grabs us by the throat. When you're praying for things to change and you're praying for things to get better, but in the midst of praying for better, things get worse. Pharaoh makes a decision that all the male Hebrew babies are to be thrown into the Nile River, effectively killed. And it seemed like everything could hit rock bottom. It seemed as though God didn't care. It seemed as though maybe, just maybe, God wasn't there. The promise that God made to Abraham seemed like pie in the sky, but then, unknown to everybody else, there was a baby boy that was born that would change everything. A baby that was given the name Moses. A great story. Moses was adopted by Pharaoh, the king of Egypt's daughter. He was raised as a royal. He was privileged. He was exposed to the, the best education of his day. But as he grew older, he began to wrestle with his biological history, his biological heritage his biological mother and father. And he, he, he you know, went through, a, obviously, some kind of journey to figure out that he himself 
He was a Hebrew, but he was being raised in Pharaoh's house. And so one day he went out to go observe the Hebrew people and their forced slavery. And he saw an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew. And what did he do? He killed the Egyptian. And when he killed the Egyptian, he fled the country as a murderer. He fled the country and he ended up as an exile in a place called Midian. And in Midian, he would meet his wife. And there in Midian, he would get married and he would get a job taking care of his father Jethro's sheep. Forty years later, when Moses is 80, something's going to happen that's going to change the course of human history. He's taking care of his father's sheep. He's on a mountain called Horeb. And out of the corner of his eye, he catches a bush that's on fire. And that was not unique because... You know, bushes catch on fire all the time, but something strange about this particular bush, this bush was not being burned up. This bush just kept burning. And so Moses went a little bit closer to inspect this burning bush when God spoke to him and said, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And in this moment, this personal God, Yahweh, meets with Moses in a very personal way that's going to mark him and change him for the rest of his life. And some of those moments have happened to some of us. When you experience God in such a personal way, it marked you. It changed you. You can't get away from it. You can't forget it. It puts your life on a totally different trajectory than what it was before. And this is what happened with Moses. He says, Moses, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As a way to remind Moses, you are part of a bigger story, big boy. You are part of a story that's bigger than your life. I am going to do something in you. I'm going to do something through you that you can't even possibly imagine. Moses, I know you think you're a shepherd in Midian hiding out from the Egyptians and hoping nobody ever finds out what you're truly guilty of. But I'm here to tell you, I'm going to use you to bend history. And I'm going to make your life greater than your lifetime. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. In other words, Moses, I want you to know, I know what's going on. Moses, I want you to know I've heard their prayers. Moses, I want you to know I've seen their tears. I'm acquainted with how they're hurting. I've seen every tear. I've heard every prayer. Moses, I want you to know, I know. He wanted Moses to know, but listen to me. He wants all of us to know that whatever you're going through, God knows and God cares. Sometimes it doesn't seem like he does, but God wants you to know today that whatever you're going through, he knows and he cares. He hears every prayer. He's seen every tear. He knows the pain. And he wants you to know that sometimes, though it may not feel like it, and sometimes it may not look like it, he knows and he cares. He wants you to know that sometimes he doesn't remove the pain, but he is always able to redeem the pain. That there's always a purpose in pain. And that God can take pain and he can take the worst of the worst and he can bring good out of it. He doesn't want you to confuse life with God because sometimes life is hard and sometimes life is unfair. And ever since sin came in in the garden, life hasn't been fair and bad things happen to some really good people. But even in the bad, God is good. And even from the bad, God is able to 
do good. Matter of fact, he wants you to know that God, God can overcome what isn't good and bring good from it. He knows and he cares and he can overcome what isn't good and he can bring good from it. That's what we're gonna see in this story. It's what some of you have already seen in your story. So God tells Moses, he said, all right, Moses, here's what's about to happen. I have come down, and just hold on to that phrase. I have come down to rescue them, the Hebrews, my people from the power of the Egyptians and to lead them, talk to me, what's that say? To lead them out. I'm coming to lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. So now, Moses, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And like many of us, our purpose begins with a single step. Moses, I want you to go. And so Moses does what a lot of us have done when God asked us to do something. He began making excuses. And his excuses basically could boil down to this confession. I am not blank enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not gifted enough. I'm not connected enough. I'm not brave enough. I'm not courageous enough. I, I, I just don't have what it takes. And God would tell him over and over again, you may not be enough, Moses, but I am. Because I am that I am. I'm the one who's sending you. And so I want you to go to Pharaoh. Yeah, but God, <laughs> I've been hanging out over here in Midian for 40 years trying to stay away from those people. Do you not know what I did when I was 40 years old? I'm 80 years old. I've kind of, you know, I killed a man. I don't want to go there. Well, that's where you're going. So I need you to go. Because sometimes to understand and experience your greatest potential, you have to face your greatest fear. And so he says, I want you to go to Pharaoh. And Moses is like, I'm not a good speaker. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a really good you know, public speaker about those guys. Go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. So Moses went. Moses goes to Pharaoh. He walks in. He says, Pharaoh, I have a message from God. And, you know, I picture it like this. I have a message from God. God said to tell you to let his, hold on, to let his people go. Because I imagine you're so nervous you had to write it down. Let his people go. And then, you know, Pharaoh looks back and says, no. I'll be back. <laughs> Moses leaves. He says, God, he says, no. And so God then begins to unleash plagues as judgment against Egypt. Plagues where the Nile River turns red and there's plagues of frogs and gnats and livestock and boils and hail and locusts and, and, and darkness. And, and really it's fascinating. I don't have time to tell you about it. Again, I could geek out about some things you don't want me to geek out about. But there's lots of people who studied these plagues in, in Exodus, in Egypt, and, and they see that perhaps maybe God was working within the rules of nature that, that we believe about that same time there was a major volcanic eruption on the island of Santorini and that this volcanic eruption set in motion some things that could have very easily led into these plagues that they're experiencing in Egypt. It's just a fascinating thing to think about. We don't really know how God did it, but we just believe that God did it. And God sent these plagues to chip away at the resistance of Pharaoh, to hopefully get him to the place to say, yes, I'm going to let my people go. But after those plagues, Pharaoh still said no. And God told Moses, Moses, there's going to be one more plague. And it's going to be the plague of death. Moses, at midnight, I'm going to send death throughout all of Egypt. And every firstborn son will die in every house, from Pharaoh's house down to the house of the least. 
Moses, it's just about time for your people to leave. So Moses goes back to his people and he says, there's one final plague. God's gonna send death throughout Egypt at midnight. But God's got a plan for us to escape death because God has said the time of our departure out of Egypt is almost at hand. And Moses tells the nation that the only hope of escaping death would be a lamb. Moses tells Israel that they are to take a lamb in every family. And not just any lamb, but a male lamb, a spotless lamb, a lamb without defect, a lamb without blemish. And they are to select that lamb before they leave Egypt. On the 10th day of the month, they would bring that lamb into the house and they would keep that lamb there until the 14th day of the month. And on the 14th day of the month, the father of that house would take that lamb without spot and without blemish and take a knife and slit its throat. And they would take a basin and they would catch the blood of that lamb and then God tells them exactly what to do with the blood of that lamb. He says, then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames on the houses where they eat the lambs. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will talk to me, pass over. I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And this would be the first Passover that Israel would ever celebrate, but it would not be the last one. Moses told them, once you slay that lamb and catch its blood, and once you push, put the blood on the tops of the doorposts and down the side, And before you have your roasted lamb for dinner, he says, I want you to be fully dressed. And I want you to be ready to leave at a moment's notice because God is getting ready to deliver us out of the land of Egypt. And later that night at midnight, death was sent throughout Egypt. And just after midnight, cries were heard, wailings, Morning screams as the firstborn sons were discovered dead in their rooms. But down in the land of the Israelites, down where they lived, there was life. At the end of death, Pharaoh said, Go, get out of here. You're not wanted anymore. And not only did the nation of Israel begin to leave Egypt, but the Egyptians began to give them treasure to say, get out of here, leave us. We we can't handle this anymore. Death had passed over and now they were about to cross over. They had been rescued by God just as God promised they would. And Passover, Passover would be something that they would repeat every single year as a way to remember what God had done for them on that first night when they left Egypt, when death passed over, when death saw the blood applied to the doorposts of their houses so that they would never forget. Matter of fact, God told them, he says, when when you enter the land that the Lord will give you, the promised land, I want you to observe this ceremony 
And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then I want you to tell them. It is the Passover. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. And on that day, I want you to tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me. When I came out of Egypt, I want you to look at your sons and daughters and say, we're doing this because once upon a time, mom and daddy were slaves. We were living in the land of Egypt. But God promised he would bring our people out. And I was there that night when death went throughout Egypt. But life came to our house because of blood that was applied to the doorpost. This is what this means to me. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. And this is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. A lasting ordinance. For the rest of their history, Passover would remind the people of God what God had done for them through Moses. It would be a reminder every time they would celebrate Passover that God knows and God cares. It would be a reminder that God hears our prayers. He sees our tears. That God can rescue us from a kingdom of tyranny. And he can bring us into a kingdom of freedom. It would be a reminder that once upon a time God rescued his people from condemnation. And they were no longer slaves, but they became sons and daughters of God. That they were taken out of the land of darkness and brought into a land of life. And Passover would always remind them that death was defeated that night in Egypt by the blood of a lamb. That out of the sacrificial death of a lamb came life. That the death of a lamb did for them what they could not do for themselves. And that was all on their mind that night when it says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And everything we just talked about came to their mind. In this moment, they thought about what God had done for Israel through Moses. But Jesus is about to change forever the meaning of Passover. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Matthew recorded Jesus' words this way, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus that night in the upper room says, guys, what I'm about to do, I do for you. The suffering that I'm about to go through, I'm going through for you. The death that I'm about to face, I'm facing it for you. Guys, what I'm about to do is going to demonstrate how far God is willing to go to win you back. What I'm about to do, what's about to happen to me, the suffering and the death that I'm about to experience, it is going to remind you that there's no length God will not go to to win you back to himself. And I am going to demonstrate once and for all how much God loves you, how much he has always loved you, how much he will always love you. 
And guys, I'm about to show you in the most personal way imaginable that the only way to escape the penalty of sin, the penalty of sin is death. The only way to escape the penalty of sin, death, is the blood of a lamb. Guys, do you remember what John said about me that first day when he saw me walking along the shoreline of the Jordan River? When he lifted up his voice and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Guys, I am about to go to the cross as God's Lamb, God's Passover Lamb, and I am going to die in your place so that you can live. I'm going to die for you so that death may pass over you. And what's about to happen, you will never again celebrate Passover and think about what God did for Israel through Moses. But from now on, when you take the cup and when you take the bread, you're going to think about what God did for you through me. And later that night, Jesus would be betrayed by Judas with a kiss, arrested, tried, sentenced to death. He'd be whipped 39 times with a cat of nine tails early Friday morning. His back lacerated from the top of his shoulders to the bottom of his feet. And then they gave him the crossbar of the cross and he began to walk towards Golgotha. And just about 9 a.m., Jesus' hands were being nailed to the cross. At that same time, Across the way at the Temple Mount, the Passover lambs were being brought into the temple. And at 9 a.m., the Passover lambs would be tied up, awaiting their slaughter. At 3 p.m. in the afternoon, Jesus lifted up his voice and he said, It is finished. The very same moment that the high priest would have taken the knife and cut the throat of the Passover lamb there in the courts of the temple. Jesus was saying, this is it. The final price for man's sin has been paid. And from this day forward, when you think back to the blood and you think back to my body, you will remember what God has done for the world through me. That Jesus, the Passover lamb, has made it possible for death and condemnation to pass over us. And when we place our faith in him, we cross over from death to life. We cross over from condemnation to freedom. We go from being afar off to being brought near. So in just a moment, you're going to receive the bread and you're going to receive the cup. And at all of our campuses, as some of our leaders prepare to give you the bread and the cup, I want you to hold on to that. And I want you to remember what it is that God has done for you through Christ. But let's bow our heads for just a moment. At all of our campuses, our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Maybe you're here and you've never trusted Jesus to be Lord and Savior of your life. Maybe you're not sure that if you were to die as you are, whether or not you have a relationship with God, whether or not you have a hope of life eternal, in this moment, why not place your faith and trust in Jesus and say, dear Lord Jesus, right now in this moment, I place my faith and trust in Jesus, my Passover lamb. That by placing my faith in Jesus' sacrifice, I am able 
to inherit eternal life. Thank you for dying for me, Jesus. And right now, the best way I know how, save me, forgive me, come into my heart and change me so that death may pass over me and I will live eternally with you. In Jesus' name.